Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 23, No Risk Too Great, Part 1 of 2. When Russia declared war on the Ottomans in November 1914, the Tsarist Empire found itself surrounded by enemies on all sides. Fighting the Austro-Hungarians in Glacia, the Germans in East Prussia, and now the Turks in the Black Sea Caucasus, this combined threat left them teetering on the precipice of self-strangulation. Despite mobilizing a staggering 5 million men in the opening months, the Russian effort was running out of steam. Men were ill-equipped, munitions were low, and as the temperature plummeted, the Russian soldier was forced to bear the winter in frozen trenches and on an empty stomach. Best surmised, the early goings for Russia amounted to a running leap, when, once in flight, realized they would not make it to the other side. But the good news was that their Western allies were not blind to the situation. On January 1st, or 2nd depending on the source, the Grand Duke Nicholas issued an appeal to London, asking Britain and France for assistance in their campaign against the Turks. The Grand Duke proposed that a diversionary attack somewhere along the European periphery would be adequate in diverting the Turks away from the Caucasus, thus relieving pressure on Russia's southern flank. In London, the Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, responded to the Duke's request that there was only one area where this diversion was possible, a narrow waterway separating continental Europe from Asia, the Dardanelles. This week is going to be our first of two episodes dedicated to the Dardanelles campaign. Since the operation took place in two parts, it makes sense to divide our discussion into two parts as well. This episode will look almost exclusively at the naval side of things, with the combined French and British fleet attempting to force the Dardanelles in February and March. In part two, we'll pick up immediately where we leave off today and cover the more famous aspect of the battle, which of course is a landing of Australian, New Zealander, British, and French troops at the Gallipoli Peninsula, an event which not only inspired a pretty good Mel Gibson film, but is widely regarded as a coming-of-age story for the Australians and New Zealanders, who found themselves stuck in one of the most mismanaged and bloody contests of the entire war. I've uploaded a map to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com, which highlights the stuff we'll be talking about today. As a heads up, I'll be using a similar map for next week as it relates to the Gallipoli landings, but I'll supplement the map with the appropriate details as our shift focuses. But before we dive headfirst into this thing, I want to set the stage a bit by catching up to what the Ottomans are up to since their entry into the war back in November. We first covered it in episode 14, but that seems like ages ago, so now would be a good time to fill in some of the blanks. As you will recall, up until late October, the Ottomans remained firmly divided over the issue of intervening in the European war. Their secret alliance with the Germans dated August 2nd notwithstanding, the Grand Vizier Said Halim was facing a polarized parliament. Non-interventionists and conservatives like himself wanted to wait until the situation in Europe became more clear, while the more radical, pro-German faction, led by the influential Minister of War Enver Pasha, believed it was only a matter of time before their uneasy relationship with Russia dragged them in. When a pair of German warships, the Goban and Brislau, anchored off Constantinople on August 10th, Enver Pasha sensed his opportunity. On October 29th, the two cruisers raided Russian ports in the Black Sea, citing the presence of Russian mine layers near the Bosphorus as justification. While it was the worst-kept secret in town that Pasha was probably behind the raid, the debate over intervention was wiped away on November 2nd, when the Russians issued their declaration of war, followed by Britain and France three days later. Almost immediately, this opened up two new theaters. A small force of about 700 British and Indian troops crossed the Persian Gulf and landed in Mesopotamia, near what is today Kuwait City. This here was the official beginning of the Middle Eastern theater, which will reach its zenith in 1917-18 with the British Indian conquest of Jerusalem and Palestine. But we are not going to get into that today, because it is mind-boggling how complex it is, and I have only begun to scratch the surface of it, so we'll leave it for a later date. 
But for purposes this week, the Second Theater does deserve more of our attention. The same day the Russians declared war, about 100,000 troops from the Russian Caucasus Army crossed the frontier into what was then Ottoman-held Armenia. It marched some 25 kilometers before being stopped by the 118,000-strong Ottoman Third Army near the small town of Sarkomish. For you geography buffs out there, Sarkomish is located directly between Lake Vaughan and the southeast basin of the Black Sea, population 17,000. With the Russians now in Ottoman territory, Enver Pasha sensed an opportunity to pad his Balkan War resume and left Constantinople to personally take command of the Ottoman Third Army. The Armenian campaign lasted just over a month, and in the Battle of Sarkomish, Pasha's forces attacked the Russian lines along a 1,400-kilometer-wide front, stretching from the Black Sea coast to Lake Vaughan, with the bulk of the fighting taking place in the mountains northwest of the town, nearly 700 meters above ground level. Now, considering this was in December and at a higher altitude, it is no surprise that nearly half the casualties sustained on both sides was a result of frostbite, brought on by the sub-zero temperatures and driving snow. Despite the deplorable conditions, the Russians had the advantage of easily resupplying through their extensive railway network, connecting them to their ports along the Black and Caspian Seas. But Pasha and the Turks had no such luxury. Prior to the war, the Ottomans had agreed not to build railway lines in the direction of the Caucasus, and as a result, Pasha was forced to rely on mules and horses to deliver supplies, which was great for mountainous terrain, but the roads leading through the passes were often covered in snow and ice, making the process slow and exposing them to Russian ambushes. On December 29th, Pasha recognized that the jig was up. 50,000 Ottoman soldiers had died, and the Russians were dangerously close to encircling his entire army. Following a desperate bayonet charge in the hopes of breaking through, Pasha ordered a general retreat on January the 4th. After returning to Constantinople, Pasha took over the chief of staff position and never again commanded an army in the field. However, the Armenian experience left a deep impression. He came to blame the debacle on the local Armenians themselves, who viewed the Russians as potential liberators. While we never know how many Armenians took part in the fighting, the Russians were greatly assisted by their efforts, whether through gathering intelligence, sabotaging Ottoman supply trains, or simple geographic knowledge, it is fair to say that the Russians would not have been able to hold on as long as they did. But to Enver Pasha, the idea of Ottoman subjects assisting an invading army was nothing short of high treason, and he, among others, came to the conclusion that no Armenian could be trusted, much in the same way the Austrians viewed the Serbs. This proved to be the context of what would become the Armenian Genocide, which, in its infancy, would get underway in April, on the eve of the Gallipoli landings. But we will set that aside for now, because I am planning on giving that event its own episode, most likely sometime in April for the 100th anniversary. So in a nutshell, this was a situation when the Grand Duke's appeal arrived in London. And although Kitchener's response was only lukewarm to a Dardanelles operation, it was Winston Churchill who picked up the baton. Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, had been eagerly searching for an opportunity to get the Royal Navy into the fight. So far, with most of the fighting restricted to the continent, naval power had become of secondary importance. And by that I mean, it had yet to have a direct impact on the war itself. But with the option of the Dardanelles now on the table, he was eager to get his due and test the mettle of his warships. Churchill believed that naval power alone would be sufficient in forcing the Dardanelles open, and once his ships were through the frightening narrow passage, could anchor off Constantinople and pressure the Ottomans into talking. He had hoped that this display of naval supremacy would force the Grand Vizier to sue for peace, or at least, keep the bulk of Ottoman weaponry away from the Caucasus in order to defend the capital. It was not a bad theory either. Churchill was horrified by the reports coming from the Western Front, and sitting on top of the most powerful navy in the world, he was totally justified in believing that sea power could be the key to the Western deadlock. By opening the Dardanelles and putting pressure on the Turks, the Allies could open a supply route straight into the Black Sea, 
which would allow for the easier flow of equipment, food, and manpower into Western Russia. To get the ball rolling on the operation, Churchill paid a visit to the commander of the East Mediterranean Fleet, Vice Admiral Sackville Cardin, to ask for his assessment on whether naval action against the Straits was plausible. Sackville Hamilton Cardin was 57 years old when he received command of the East Mediterranean Fleet. He had gotten the job when its previous commander, Rear Admiral Toobridge, had been told to pack his bags following the escape of the Goibin and Brislau. Cardin had expected that he would live out his final years of service at the Royal Navy outpost at Malta, but found himself plucked from obscurity and put in one of the most important commands in the entire Navy. Mark Twain is famously quoted to have said, History does not repeat, but it rhymes, and Cardin is a good example of that put into practice. On November 3, 1914, Churchill had ordered Cardin to bombard the outer forts at the Dardanelles entrance. This action had little military value, and was really just Churchill stamping his feet after the Turks stuck it to him by refusing to release the German warships, but it did have consequences. One of the shells struck the ammunition storage at one of the Ottoman forts, and in a subsequent explosion, 86 Ottoman soldiers were killed, causing an uproar in Constantinople. Considering the Ottomans were still neutral on November 3rd, the British did not declare until November 5th, remember, it is no wonder why the Turks eventually sided with the Central Powers. Cardin's reply to Churchill's inquiry was a reluctant, hmm, yes, maybe. He made clear that indeed it was theoretically possible for the Straits to be opened through naval force alone, but on the condition that the Navy take their time and not attempt to rush the Straits. The high bluffs which dominated either side of the entrance and the ever-present threat of underwater mines gave the defenders a distinct advantage. The Admiral was also concerned about geography. At its narrowest point, the Dardanelles were only one mile across, which to Cardin acted as a natural target for Ottoman artillery to zero their guns to. Even a small fleet of ships, consisting of more mobile destroyers and cruisers, would have to traverse the narrows in near single file, because trying to turn around in the thick of battle was far too hazardous. But Churchill, the crusader type that he was, must have stopped listening after he heard, yes. In a war council meeting held on January the 13th, Churchill presented his argument, backed by Carton's written assessment as evidence. In attendance were all the heads of the executive branches, Lord Kitchener, the Admiral of the Grand Fleet, John Jellicoe, Prime Minister Asquith, and Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lord George. But Churchill had problems getting support. Admiral Jellicoe was not convinced that an attack on the Dardanelles was worth it, because even after a prolonged bombardment, there was no way the Navy could ensure that the Ottoman guns had been knocked out. After all, a battleship can only do so much from the sea. Jellicoe, a protege of Jackie Fisher, the architect of the modern Navy and father of the Dreadnought, believed that the best play for the Grand Fleet was to remain situated in the North Sea, in order to contain the German Dreadnought threat. But things began to turn in Churchill's favor, when Lord Kitchener gave his consent, but on the condition that this was to be a Navy operation alone, and made clear that the Army would have nothing to do with it. With Kitchener in the mix, Jellicoe did not have much of a choice. The Secretary of State for War helped soothe the Admiral's concern by insisting that if the Navy found itself in any trouble, the entire operation could be abandoned at a moment's notice, although at what point the Navy would be considered in trouble was left undetermined. For the men at the meeting, this was to be a low-cost operation. If it worked, it could knock the Ottomans out of the war, but if it failed and the Dardanelles proved difficult to crack, the ships could be turned back no worse for the wear. After all, 1915 was to be a year of great experimentation. In his scathing analysis of British planning, Peter Hart criticizes that the Dardanelles operation was a campaign driven by wish fulfillment rather than professional assessment. Hart points out that the leaders at the January meeting had forgotten that their main enemy was Germany, not the Ottoman Empire. Even by defeating the Ottomans, it would have no effect on Germany whatsoever. But I think Hart is a bit too severe in his criticism, which falls closely in line with the lions led by Donkey's critique. The reality was a bit more complicated. 
By January, the 100,000-strong BEF had been shot to pieces at Ypres, and the horrors of the Western Front were slowly starting to hit home. For centuries, the Royal Navy had been the workhorse of Britain's global supremacy, but in this war, it had, so far, only stood on the sidelines in either a blockade role against Germany or escorting merchant shipping across the Atlantic. The blockade of Germany, which had begun almost immediately, would take some time to bite. It was so many troops being killed in France and Belgium, men like Churchill, Kitchener, and Jellicoe knew the navy could not sit by complacently. Britain was only as strong as its navy, and if you're not going to use it, it becomes an expensive liability. Plus, if you factor in what we covered last week, with German efforts being concentrated in the east, knocking out the Ottomans as a way to assist Russia was a viable option. Not to mention, the Western allies owed the Russians. Their attack into East Prussia in horrific defeat at Tannenberg had come because that was what the Entente required to survive, by forcing Germany into a two-front war. So when the Russians requested help, the Western Allies knew they had to answer. In the weeks following the War Council meeting, the Allies began mustering the ships which would take part in the operation. The task of assembling the Armada soon hit a snag, when Jellicoe proved reluctant to commit his most powerful warships, while the French, wanting to show their support, could not release their dreadnoughts due to the Austro-Hungarian naval threat in the central Mediterranean. But it was the re-emergence of Jackie Fisher, whose star in the Admiralty was second only to Horatio Nelson, who helped put the fleet together. Fisher had retired from service back in 1910, but following the debacle at Coronel, had been called back by Churchill who appointed this 74-year-old admiral as First Sea Lord, not to be confused with Churchill's post as First Lord of the Admiralty, which was a government, not military position. Churchill had hoped that Fisher's hard-drive personality would help keep his relationship with the admirals on straight path, but the two men soon clashed. Churchill had wanted to relocate the Mediterranean fleet to the Dardanelles, but Fisher believed that moving the fleet eastward would reduce Britain's overall presence, and instead wanted to assemble the Dardanelles fleet using outdated or untested warships. Due to his close relationship with Jellicoe, Fisher managed to cajole several important warships from the Grand Fleet. The first being the shiny new HMS Queen Elizabeth, a 31,000-ton super dreadnought whose 15-inch guns had yet to be calibrated, while the second was the battlecruiser Inflexible, the same ship used to help sink Admiral von Spee's East Asia Squadron at the Falcons. See, this stuff does rhyme. To overwhelm the Ottoman force lining the Dardanelles and Gallipoli Peninsula, Fisher and the Admiralty assembled an armada from all over the world. In addition to the Queen Elizabeth and Inflexible, there were 12 British and 4 French pre-dreadnought warships, 4 light cruisers, and 19 British and French destroyers, plus numerous smaller support craft including submarines, colliers, and 45 fishing trawlers recently converted into minesweepers, largely manned by civilian crews. With Admiral Sackville Carden at the helm, the fleet was an impressive 90 ships strong and had enough firepower to break the measly Ottoman defenses, or so the Admiralty thought. But the Turks were not to be caught blindsided. One of the unplanned results of Carden's 1914 bombardment was that it had shown the Turks that the defenses along the strait needed to be modernized and reinforced. In the capital, it was Lehman von Sanders, the head of the German military mission, who shouldered the responsibility of organizing the defenses of the peninsula. Since his arrival following the Balkan Wars, Saunders, along with the Admiral Wilhelm Schuchen, the commander of the Goben, had received official posts in the Ottoman military, and immediately went to work buffing up its forces. Following mobilization, the Turks fielded some half a million men, who despite being low on munitions were formidably tough soldiers. Like the Russian, the Turk who was a hardy soldier, who could survive off meager rations and remain in fighting spirits in the most extreme conditions. And with Saunders at the helm, and lessons from the Balkan and the Libyan War, the Ottomans had seen that mobility and strong fortification were the key to victory. 
After all, it was at the Katalka line against the Bulgarians, which had practically saved Constantinople from being sacked. But most crucially, the Turks were well aware of how important the Dardanelles were to the Russians, as they were the only gateway into the Black Sea and had been a sought-after prize by the Tsars for decades, most recently highlighted by the Bosnian dispute in 1909. So the Ottomans knew well in advance that any serious effort by the Allies against them was likely to come in that direction. Admiral Cardin had chosen the Greek island of Madras as his base of operations, about 96 kilometers southwest of the Dardanelles. And on the bright morning of February 19th, his ships immediately began hammering the outer Ottoman forts. Among the neutral states, news of the bombardment was met with enthusiasm. The pro-Allied Greeks, in addition to allowing safe harbor of Cardin's fleet, offered a troop detachment to land at Gallipoli. The Bulgarians immediately broke off diplomatic ties with Germany, and most crucially, word was that the Russians were in the process of organizing a secondary offensive against the Bosphorus from the Black Sea. In Constantinople, Enver Pasha had special trains set up in order to carry the Sultan into hiding. Even Admiral von Tirpitz, a thousand kilometers away in Berlin, gloomily noted, quote, The forcing of the Dardanelles would be a severe blow to us. We have no trumps left, unquote. It was a resounding political victory which gave credence to Churchill's vision, but this initial outpouring proved more knee-jerk than sincere. The bombardment had begun around 11 a.m., a sure sign of naval overconfidence, and continued until 5 p.m. with Cardin's warships slowly tightening the noose around the straits. But until now, there hadn't been any response from the Turks. Through the smoke and dust now covering the bluffs, Cardin and his admirals assumed that the forts had been silenced. That all changed just before 5 o'clock when three battleships were sent to inspect the damage. The Ottoman gunners waited until they were within range, and then the batteries answered in a deafening cannonade, showering the ships with artillery, but which failed to hit any of them. Despite a six-hour bombardment with nearly 140 rounds landing on Turkish soil, the navy had failed to damage the Ottoman forts, and had barely inflicted any casualties. The problem for the navy was that their crews had little experience hitting targets positioned at a higher elevation. Plus, Cardin had kept his ships safely at a distance from the Ottoman howitzers, which meant that crews were expected to hit their targets at maximum range. For example, Cardin's flagship, the Inflexible, had fired its volleys 11,000 meters from the forts, and no crew were trained to be accurate at that impossible distance. Unfortunately, the weather soon took a turn for the worse, and for the next five days, gale-force winds and lightning storms convinced Cardin to order the fleet back to Madras, where he was forced to wait it out. When the weather cleared on February 25th, the naval action resumed, and the five-day respite had given the naval gunners time to correct their mistakes. This time around, the shells from the Queen Elizabeth, Inflexible, and other powerful warships found their mark. The outer forts were reduced to rubble, and just to make sure this time, a small landing party of about 80 men were sent ashore to detonate any remaining munitions and equipment. At this point, everything seemed to be back on track. Discarding the storm, it had taken less than 24 hours to silence the outer forts, and based on the reports from the landing parties, the Turks had been sent scrambling inland, and Cardin could now begin the process of entering the straits themselves. But this blip of optimism proved to be a false dawn, and from here on out, the operation would go from bad to worse. Clearing the outer forts was the easy part, but now the fleet was faced with a two-headed threat. One was the various minefields which lurked within the straits, and the second was the high bluffs lining both sides of the narrows. It was on these bluffs where the Turks would put mobility into practice. The immediate problem for Cardin was he could not begin sending his warships into the straits without first clearing the minefields. The 45 fishing trawlers, now minesweavers here as provided, stood no chance against the artillery. In fact, a direct hit from a mortar round could be fatal. Naval minesweeping in those days, as it remains today, is a very dangerous affair. Naval mines are small explosive devices which are weighted down by a mooring wire, 
Wires can be set depending on how deep the mines were placed, and in most cases extended just a few feet beneath the surface, in order to catch the hulls of heavier ships passing by, like battleships, merchant crafts, or submarines. But early minesweepers had a lighter displacement than most naval vessels, and could pass over the mines without incident. Essentially, what was required was the sweeper to drag a long, specially designed cable, anchored down by a depressor. As the ship passed over a mine, the cable would cut the mooring wire, forcing the mine to the surface. The exposed mine was then, and I am not making this up, detonated by rifle fire from the crew on board. To make matters more difficult, Cardin had decided that the safest way for the sweepers to operate was to enter the straits by night. There were two factors which influenced this decision. The first, obviously being that sending the sweepers in during the day was far too hazardous. But the second proved to be an unheeded warning of things to come. Aerial reports were indicating that they had been unable to locate the mobile Ottoman howitzers. This information, coupled with the reports from the landing parties that the Turks had fled inland, did not sit well with the Admiral. In a meeting with his command, including his soon-to-be successor, Rear Admiral Sir John Roybeck, the decision was made that given the circumstances, minesweeping operations would be done by night. The minesweepers first made their way into the straits on March the 2nd, with the expectation that the Turks would be caught napping. But Saunders and his generals had not been dormant over the past several days, and in the meantime had brought up five searchlight batteries and trained their illumination on each of the minefields. When the sweepers came within range, the searchlights lit up the ships as clear as day, and shell fire from the mobile howitzers and fortress guns began to rain down around them. Luckily for the sweepers and their brave civilian crews, all of them managed to escape. This process continued for the next several days, and even with the battleships suppressing the inner forts, the mobile howitzers proved a constant nuisance. They were no threat to the more heavily armored ships, but what made them tricky, and this goes back to my point about mobility, was that their crews would never remain in the same spot twice. For the naval gunners, calibrating your sights took time, and if the target was constantly on the move, then it made it almost impossible to hit. On March the 13th, the sweepers changed tactics by approaching the minefields at an angle and conducting their sweeps in crescent-shaped passes. This way, the ships could stay mobile for greater lengths of time and make it difficult for the Ottoman guns. But, once attempted, the Turks simply adapted and waited for the sweepers to be in mid-turn before opening fire. At this point, the entire operation began to break down. The stress of command and repeated failures to clear the straits had taken their toll on Cardin, who was replaced by Sir John de Roybeck on March the 17th. In London, Churchill, who had ridden the wave of prospective victory, was forced to admit that things had gone terribly wrong. Failure was becoming imminent, and reflecting on Kitchener's promise to Jellicoe at the January meeting, Churchill felt that at any moment the operation would cease. Quote, One gesture with a wand, and the whole armada would melt away and vanish. Unquote. However, as we know, the order to abandon the operation never came. In his book, Castles of Steel, Robert Massey points out that the decision to continue the attack was simply a matter of prestige. The Admiralty had already overplayed their hand, and at this point, giving up after a month of repeated failures would be a crippling blow to the Entente. To quote Massey, National prestige had now been invested in the expedition. Neither Britain nor France wished the enemy or the neutrals to witness the spectacle of the Entente powers retreating in the face of a setback, unquote. The key word in there is setback, which can be a very dangerous term, as it implies that victory, or in great war lingo, the next big push, was just around the corner. To overcome this setback, on March the 18th, the new commander, Admiral Roybeck, assembled 18 battleships from the fleet to deliver a hammer blow against the Turkish forts. The plan was to go back to the beginning, by bombarding the inner forts at a distance of 800 meters, and then slowly begin to close the distance, all while covering the approach of the minesweepers. 
Roybeck had organized his fleet into two lines, which would fight much like the ways of a Roman legion. Line A, consisting of his most powerful ships, would commence the bombardment, while Line B would follow closely behind and keep up support while the crews on Line A reloaded their guns. When the two lines got to the mouth of the straits, Line A will remain behind and continue firing, while B made their way into the narrows. This way, there would never be a break in fire, and the Turks would be kept down in their trenches and dugouts. However, the Turks proved up to the task, and their mobile artillery made the minesweepers' jobs a nightmare. In addition to the harassing fire, the Ottoman navy had been busy at work replacing the mines caught by Allied sweepers, and when the ships of Line B entered the narrows, they found themselves stuck in minefields which should not have been there. The inflexible, Cardin's old flagship struck a mine killing 29 sailors in the process, and by 2pm, three battleships had struck mines with considerable damage. One of these ships was the French battleship Bouvet, which struck a mine and sunk within two minutes, taking 700 men including the captain down with her. At 5pm, it was clear that the attempt had failed, and Roybeck was forced to call off the assault. Of the 18 ships sent against the straits that morning, only 7 managed to escape without damage with the Bouvet and two British pre-dreadnoughts, the Ocean and Irresistible, being sunk to the bottom. In a meeting on board the Queen Elizabeth on March the 22nd, the senior commanders discussed what the next step should be. Roybeck had agreed that the Straits could not be forced with naval power alone, and with permission from London had begun searching for alternatives. However, he refused to acknowledge that this was a lost cause, and suggested that the attacks could resume in April, once the repairs to the damaged ships were complete. At this meeting was General Sir Ian Hamilton. Hamilton was the senior commander of the loosely identified Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, consisting mostly of troops from Australia and New Zealand. Hamilton believed that a landing at Gallipoli was required in order to secure passage to the Straits, and next week will get his chance as the Anzacs, British, and French troops will make landfall. And if the Allies thought things had gone bad now, the fighting on the peninsula would only prove just how worse things could get. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podme.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get into contact with me. Comments, criticisms, and feedback of any kind are always more than welcome. If you're interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, give us a search on iTunes, and if you want, you can leave us a five-star review as that will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue plugging away on new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.